Wonderful hymn, isn't it? Jesus, and shall it ever be a mortal man ashamed of thee? And yet the truth is often we are ashamed of the Lord, aren't we? We, we don't mean to be, we hate ourselves for it, but uh, we can be so uh, cowardly at times. And uh, no matter how long we've been involved in, in the work of evangelism, or how long we've been a Christian, it, we still struggle at times in this godless world to own up to the fact that we belong to Jesus. And, uh, well, maybe I could ask you, how, how open are you about the fact that you're a Christian? These are difficult days, and there's tremendous pressure upon us just to crush us or to keep us quiet, at least. And... Uh, you know, we, we live in a culture that is so brazen about its sin, and yet we can be so uh, timid about our faith in, in Christ. Um, years ago, we served God in, in a work in Covent Garden in central London. And it was at the, the, the cutting edge of many things, so we were told, and at the cutting edge of sin, certainly, but... Uh, we, we were set aside, uh, besides other aspects of the church planting work, we set aside Saturday afternoons for some open air work. And uh, a little group of us there would be, um, if, if you know Covent Garden, you get that rundown from the, the tube station in Covent Garden down to the market, that little road, James Street. And it was like a river of souls flocking down to the market and we would perch on the side. And one day we, we were there and uh, just having a break, just, someone just preached. And, and the, car, the, the, the crowds began to, to part like the, like the Red Sea. <laughs> and uh, this, this, there was this sound and this noise. There was a group of young men, and all dressed the same, white shirts, white trousers, white Panama hats, with, with, with a yellow ribbon around their neck, blowing a whistle, a whistle attached to the ribbon. And they were all jogging down there, and the crowds parted, they jogged down to the market, and they stopped just to where we were. And so I said to them, I said, who are you guys? What, what are you doing? He said, we're all homosexuals and we're coming out today. Now, now bear in mind, this was 25 years ago. You know, today that wouldn't be so startling, but this was 25 years ago. And I couldn't help being impressed by their bravery. I certainly didn't agree with their cause, but I had to admire their courage. They were homosexuals and they were coming out and they, they didn't care who thought anything about them. Didn't, whatever opinion people had, didn't care. And I looked at the handful of us. I thought, oh, that the church might be so bold about their saviour as these guys are about their sin. So we all battle with this. And uh, I'm not here to speak about open air work, but the... Just the ongoing battle we give, and I face it, I wish I could say I didn't, but I, I hope that we might just be emboldened tonight to, 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 be, to be brave and, and to take a stand for, for Jesus Christ. And to help us, we're going to look at a man in John chapter 19, and at the, um, towards the end of that, the last, from verse 38, um, a man who was a true believer in Christ, and yet he was... He was ashamed and silent about his faith. He was fearful. But one day there's a remarkable change. And this man came.
came out for Christ. No, perhaps you need to do that, if I can say this right at the front. Maybe you need to do this. Maybe tonight will be a turning point where you will say, I'm going to make a stand. And well, just look at the background here. As we, we read from verse 28, and really the context is the death of Christ. It, it's the, the climax of his work on earth to, to die on the cross, dying in our place. And uh, a lonely time, the, the Lord was a lonely figure towards the end. We saw this morning, or said this morning, that all deserted him, all fled. And he's up there on that cross. They could be, they couldn't have been a more lonely person than Jesus Christ hung up on a cross. And of course, nothing was happening by chance. We who are Christians, we know that. We, we, we know the scriptures where all the Old Testament is, is, is pregnant, uh, it's expectant, it's saying he's coming, he's coming. And, and all the prophecies about Jesus Christ, um, so many were going to be fulfilled in his life and his death and um, well, for instance, Isaiah, but let's go to that classic Isaiah 53. What was happening on the cross? Well, Isaiah the prophet was given this clear view of the substitutionary work of, of, of Christ. And verse, uh, Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely, what was he doing on the cross? Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So there is Christ, as we read that passage in John, he is fulfilling that. He's the Lamb of God. He's come to bear our sins in his body on the tree. And, and yet not just his death, but you see, even his burial was foretold over 700 years previously, the death, and then the burial. When we come to verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So, back in John now, well, after the death of Christ, cue Joseph of Arimathea, because we're told that Christ would be given a grave, a burial with the rich in his death. So we read then at the end of John 19 that a man goes to the Roman governor, to, to Pilate, to collect the, the body of Jesus Christ. This is Joseph of Arimathea and he's going to collect it for a burial in, in a new tomb which he was going to provide. So let's look a little bit at this man, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Um, John 19 verse 38 Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. 
He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus by night. But um, here we're told he was a disciple of Jesus. Um, if, if we put the gospel accounts together, uh, Matthew, in his gospel, Matthew 27, verse 57, we're told a rich man from Arimathea um, came to collect the body. So he was a rich disciple. Uh, and we might well ask, well, can you be a rich follower of Jesus Christ? Can you be a rich Christian? Um, certainly in my, um, my, my young days as a Christian, I knew it all back then. I don't know why I've lost so much. Um, you know, within the first year, I think I knew everything. Everything was black and white, had all the answers. Any answers, come to Mike Meller. And uh, you know how it goes year by year. You think, oh, I think I know less than I did. You know? <laughs> I said, one of my things I was certain on is that you could not be a rich Christian. You know, no, you must, you must give it all away. You know, and if, you're, if you're wealthy, no, sorry. And uh, bit by bit, God began to show me how he can use rich Christians. And if I mentioned the work in, in Covent Garden, um, it was essential that we lived in Covent Garden because we were missionaries there, really, but couldn't get any accommodation there. So we were living in Finchley and, and commuting in every day on the tube and working and coming back. And I thought, oh, this is, this, this is hopeless. We need to be living among the people. But um, we put our, our names on the little list for, for a, a housing association, but um, they put it right down the bottom. We thought we might, you know, as, as a worker, a church worker, we might get put up, but no, we put right down the bottom. And everything looked impossible. So we were employed by the London InReach project, and so the, the committee met for a, a day of prayer and fasting. And um, well, we, we met and we were praying for the impossible, for provision. And we hadn't been praying long before the, the treasurer, dear man called Peter German, he, um, he says, brother, brother, can I share something with you? And then he began to weep. So he said, pull yourself together, man, you're reformed. And uh, no, we didn't know him say that. <laughs> and, but he began to share that um, we, we call this day of prayer, but just a couple of days before, he'd received a check. And he thought it was for £235, but then he got it out again, and it's for £235,000. Now, again, bear in mind this was, you know, 25 years ago, or more, no, more than that. Uh, anyway. Um, so what it did, it enabled us to actually purchase a house in Covent Garden. The house now is worth about one and a half million. It's, you know. But uh, so not just a little flat, but we had a three-bedroom house. Well, not we, but the, <laughs> the committee had a, a three-bedroom house, and it's still there today, right in the middle of Covent Garden. But it came through a man who God has blessed financially and said, oh, what's, the, what's the need? And it, we know there was a letter, what, what's the Mellon's greatest need? Oh, it's to live in Covent Garden. Okay, check, you know. So bit by bit, God began to say, yes, I can use rich Christians. Any rich Christians here tonight? Nice to see you. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, this man, he, he was a rich disciple. And, um, but, but his problem really was that the, the pressures around him were causing him to be to be silent, to, be, to keep a, 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 a sinful silence, really, if we're honest. And, uh, and as I said a moment ago, you know, there are pressures on us that are increasing day by day just to tone it down a bit. 
Because we're considered the, the weirdos now. Oh, evangelical Christians, <gasps> the, the bigots, you know, the, uh, the pariahs of society. We are, we are the, the thorn in the flesh to, to this world. We're the ones holding back our great nation with our historical views and our archaic practices and our narrow-mindedness. No, we're, we're the ones. So the pressure is getting, you know, more strong against us. We're, we're feeling it more and more. And so the pressure to be silent has perhaps never been so great. I want to consider four snares then I think we have to contend with in the Christian life. And we battle with it. You know, living in 21st century Britain, four particular snares, four particular traps. And the first thing is, is the snare of materialism. Now, you don't have to be rich to, to be a materialist, <laughs> but that's the atmosphere that we're living in. You know, we, live, we live for stuff. You know, we, we have to fit our, our, our lifestyle around the need for stuff that we have. And we don't have enough. We need to get more and more stuff, you know, and, and dearer stuff and more advanced technological stuff. And all, all the while, the, the, the pressure is on us. And the trouble is that it, it's choking the spiritual life of our nation. You know, the, the materialism of, of 21st century Britain, it is choking spiritual life. It's because it's people who want heaven now. That's what it is. We live in a culture that says, this is heaven. There's no God, there's, there's no future, there's no, there's no life after death. So all of our society is geared to make heaven now. Whether it's our health, whether it's our leisure time, whatever it is, it's all aimed at you in your heaven on earth. And we all get trapped in this. It's not just unbelievers. No, we're, the, the most godly Christian can be caught up in this whole snare of materialism. Michael Green, he, he died recently. He was a, an Anglican uh, evangelist. And um, he wrote about the rat race. And he's, this, this is how he described the rat race that, that we get caught up in. You finish your studies. Look for a well-paid job. Get more money each year and better prospects. Get a husband or a wife, get a car, get a house, get a family, get a better house, get a second car, get promotion, get ulcers, retire as soon as possible, then fill your life with as much as you can before you die. That's the rat race. Keep getting more, 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 more all the time. Don't be satisfied with that. You know, look at that. Look how, look how slow your laptop is. Look how, you know, all the time. Well, you, you've, got that, you've got that ancient old phone. God, they went out five months ago. Well, okay, but there's all that kind of pressure there. You know, you've had those curtains three years. God, get, tear them down. You know, all the time, that just the pressure of this age. But it's not a new disease. You know, materialism is not a new disease. It, it, it's millennia old. Um, Thomas Manton, 17th century, he wrote, There is no vice which more effectively deadens the feelings, which make a person's affections centre on himself than the desire of accumulating possessions. So we live in this age that's seeking its heaven now, and yet people are not happy, are they? <laughs> we, we, we look around at people, and uh, there's, there's a growing tension and dissatisfaction it doesn't matter how much more. This is what it's like drinking salt water. You know, you, you, you drink it and you need more, you need more. And, 
You know, people are not happy. We've, we've never had so much. And he went into Harold Macmillan then. We've never had it so good. But, you know, we, we've never had it so good. But, um, now, Bernard Levin was an uh, insightful man. He used to write in the Times years ago. Now, this is probably decades ago. Listen to this, though. Countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire, together with such non-material blessings as a happy family. And yet they lead lives of quiet and at times noisy desperation, understanding nothing but the fact that there is a hole inside of them, and that however much food and drink they pour into it, how many cars or TVs or pleasures they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends they parade around the edges of it, the heart aches. I think for our encouragement, Christians, we're surrounded by people with a growing sense of need. I don't think we should be fooled by the fake smiles. We're surrounded by people whose lives are falling apart and are longing for the hope that the Christian has. But it's the snare of materialism. But then there's the snare of fame. None of us escapes it. It's just that, that inner lust to be known and admired by everyone. You know, just look at the number of re reality TV shows. I mean, you just wonder what's coming next. Um, people will do anything to get, to get on TV. Um, I mean, I've just seen the trailers for Love Island. It's enough, you know. People are desperate to, to grab a little bit of, of, of fame. And the talent shows, the, the Britain's Got Talents, and you know, people are queuing up. They long for the whole world to applaud them. For the whole, I mean, you look at the celebrities and they're neurotic. How are the ratings going? You, know, you, 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 you get some kind of fame. And these people are absolutely neurotic. Years ago, I used to work in, in, in the music business and back the so-called stars, and they were new. the curtain were closed, and these people were neurotic. No wonder so many had drink problems and drug problems, and you know we're, we're living in that world. But nowadays, everybody's a celebrity with, with social media. Now, everyone's a celeb. You know, and if we're honest, we all have that crippling desire. How many likes have I got? You know, social media. Someone has. He unfriended me, or you know, I should. Oh no, it, it plays with the mind, and we're we're longing for approval, and so it is this it is this snare for fame, and maybe that's not the best word, but to be popular, to be accepted, it, no one escapes. Then the snare of power, and again, it's that it's that inner drive. It's, it's it's all linked, I'm sure, but you know, we want to be seen as someone who's important. Someone of authority. You know, we're not just like the also-rans. No, 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 I'm someone special. and uh, we, we want to be in a place of authority all the time. And, and it's just getting harder to find people with a truly servant heart. It's lovely when you meet someone, isn't it? Because they, they don't go around telling people how humble they are. You just feel at rest in their presence, don't you? <laughs> because they're interested in you. It's not about them. So when you meet a really humble person, you think, I don't know what it was about. It doesn't strike you at first, but you just think, I enjoyed being with them. <laughs> it wasn't about them. And they're interested in you. 
And so, you know, that, that, that's such a rare thing today in, in this whole, you know, atmosphere where everyone's rivaling for power and importance and promoting themselves. And then, lastly, the snare of pleasure. We, we're told, the scriptures tell us, in the last days, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And again, we see it around us, but we can't uh, extract ourselves from the same temptations. You know, it's the consumer age, and we're, we're continually being promised, we'll give you what you want, when you want it. You think of that now. Maybe not put it like that, but when, if someone's trying to sell you something, we'll give you what you want, when you want it. It's all about you. And all the TV adverts and all the, the media, it's all geared about, it's all about you. you know, it's all about, and so we get drawn into this thing all the time. Um, and we, we get trapped into this lifestyle of pleasure. And so the, the, the bottom line is, we can't live without this lifestyle. The lifestyle rules us. And so we say, well, Lord, we, I do love you. But in reality, the outworking of it, we're mastered, we're tamed. Because we can't break out of these snares. And they're controlling our lives. Now, we, when we look at Joseph, it, it, again, this is you know, 2,000 years ago, but there's the same kind of pressure upon him. Verse 38, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. He was a leading man in the community. He had status. And, and to be known as a follower of this despised Jesus of Nazareth, could mean the end of his career, his reputation blown. Then what would he do? Well, the Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. And I wonder how it is with you. Are you living in that kind of fear? What if they find out you're a Christian? Uh, all that kind of subtle pressure. But then there's a great change, and this is where we want to go, really. There's a great change in this person because although we're told he was a man who was a secret disciple because of fear, we see there's a transformation in his life. Now Mark tells us in his account that Joseph goes boldly. He has the word boldly. So this man, he's fearful, but all of a sudden he's going boldly. There's a new courage that's gripped him. There's a new Joseph that's emerging now. And so we have to ask them, well, what could have brought about the change in this man? You know, so, so suddenly, to, to cause this man who was afraid and timid, suddenly to go to Pilate. It can only be the fact that, and I hope I'm not reading into this, but he saw Jesus of Nazareth die. He was there. And he was a man steeped in the scriptures. And all of a sudden, they came alive and they became personal. Surely he took up my infirmities, that one on the cross, carried my sorrows. Surely he's pierced for my transgressions, crushed for my iniquities. And the punishment that brought me peace is upon him by his wounds. I am healed. And he looks at Jesus Christ. 
And I think when you, when you get that look of Jesus Christ, where everything becomes real, it's a transforming look. Because you have a dilemma. Because when you see that's the king of glory, and he's dying naked, publicly, for me? So how can I be ashamed of him? And I think he was just overwhelmed with the love of Christ, which is the greatest motivation. When I really am convinced that Jesus Christ loved me, and he did all that for me. Now, we know he died for his people. We know he died for the church. But when that becomes a personal reality, he gives us a new courage. We say, Lord, how can I be ashamed of you? No longer a secret disciple. Maybe this is my imagination now, but I, I, can, I can see Joseph going to Pilate. And what do you do with a corpse? Here you are, Joseph. Here's the body you wanted. And here he is. In his arms is this cold, dead corpse. And he's walking through Jerusalem. And he's thinking, I, I don't care who sees me. <laughs> I don't mind. But Joseph, you're carrying a corpse. Oh, no. This is my Lord. We sang, didn't we? Ashamed of Jesus. Jesus and shall it ever be? A mortal man ashamed of thee. Ashamed of thee whom angels praise. Whose glories shine through endless days. Ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend. On whom my hopes of heaven depend. Know when I blush, be this my shame, that I no more revere his name. Ashamed of Jesus, yes I may, when I've no guilt to wash away, no tear to wipe, no good to crave, no fears to quell, no soul to save. Till then I boast a saviour slain, and oh, may this my portion be. My Saviour is not ashamed of me. Well, the love of Jesus Christ. We sing at times, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. So, let me just bring this to a close. And it's, it's a battle. You know, I, I'm, I'm number one coward. I, I'm, a, I've often, I'm a shy coward by nature. And, uh, and I, I battle on a daily basis. So please, you know, we, we're in this together. But we must battle against this. What, what is stopping us? Is it our lifestyle? Is it our personality? What is stopping us? But what I see in Joseph is what brought him release is actually doing something. He, he, he came out 
just as gay people are coming out, and everyone celebrates it. Folks, we need to come out. I mean, graciously, not brashly in any way. But Lord, we need to pray. Lord, give, give me, show me the way I can come out. Maybe it's by doing something. Uh, for those who have not been baptised, this is how the Lord helps us. We, we believe in him and he gets us to stand. It's, it's hard. It's hard to stand publicly, but this is one of the greatest provisions the Lord gives. You believe in me? Right now, stand up. Make a public declaration. I've seen how God strengthened people. It's not an easy thing to do. When we, our first church in Aberbeg, in, in the valleys in Wales, we, we had a little lady called Mrs. Hale. And Mrs. Hale had been a chapel goer for years, but not saved. But the Lord met with her, really saved her, now, Mrs. Hale um, was very shy. She was only about four foot high, well, maybe a little, little, and she used to giggle. <laughs> she used to put her hand in front of her mouth and giggle. <laughs> now, Mrs. Hale was lovely, and, um, and she could see from Scripture that she should believe and be baptised. So one day she came to me, she said, oh, Mr. Mellor, <laughs> I, I won't go on like that, but... I can see I need to be baptised. I can't do, um, can't do the voice either. But anyway, she, was, she, she could see she needed to be baptised. Now, the problem is that Mrs. Hale had a water phobia. She, she had a fear of... She did wash. But to be baptised, to go be plunged under and come out of here, just, you know, this wasn't... So I said, I said, Mrs. Hale, if the Lord tells us to do something, he'll give us the grace to do it. So the day came, and... Um, Church full of people, chapel full of people. Mrs. Hale comes up. <laughs> Giggle. I said, are you willing to maybe give a word of testimony? Well, I couldn't get the mic off of her. What happened to you? <laughs> but then the, the, the moment of truth is she goes down into the water. I thought, this is it. So, ready Mrs. Hale? Yeah, and then plunge. I'm sure from under the water I could hear. <laughs> no, she wasn't giggling under the water. But, but she came up again beaming and... Uh, but the thing is that the Lord rewards obedience, doesn't he? But either maybe you've been baptised, but maybe you've lost something. Maybe you've lost something that you once had. You need to come out. You need to do something. I don't know what it might be. Pray, Lord, what do you want me to do? How can I come out with a new boldness for you? Something in the church, there's something here you can do. Pray about that. But maybe you haven't come to that point. Maybe you haven't trusted Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to come out and say, Lord, I want to trust you. You know, folks, this is heaven and hell stuff, isn't it? This is heaven and hell. We're not talking about a nicer lifestyle to be a Christian. It's going to get tough for you to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It is tough. When people say to me, oh, you Christians, you need a, you know, you just need a crutch. They've got no idea that it takes enormous courage to be a follower of Jesus Christ today. Enormous courage. People are dying for Christ. So it takes tremendous guts to say, I am a follower of Jesus. And so we need to be bold, but really gracious. So these are days where we can really come and, and take a stand. And, and you know what I find, especially when I work among young people, they recognise boldness. They, they recognise conviction. And I'm certainly not, you know, 
appealing for brashness, but that humble heart that loves Jesus Christ. And they can see that it's costing you something to be a follower. And then there's impact. People today are longing for the man, for the woman, who shows a confident hope in life and the life to come. Well, tomorrow, what you got planned for tomorrow? I wonder what you might do. What's, what's heading up for you tomorrow? Would you pray, Lord, tomorrow's a new day. I want to be a new person to meet that day. Maybe you pray that now. Lord, transform me. And God might keep you in weakness. He does with some of us. We, we, we battle with If only there was a tablet you can take and it turns you into perfect Christian, never ashamed of Jesus. <laughs> it's a battle day by day. But boy, what joy there is in standing for Jesus Christ. It does something. I, I would be the world's greatest backslider if I didn't make a fool of myself on a regular basis. It does something for me. You know, I, I was telling um, Cecilia and Paul earlier, you know, that, trying to get in a conversation with someone and you, know, you sat on a bench, the wife's shopping or something, you're sat on a bench and someone sits at the side of you and you feel the spirit prompting you to speak and I'm going, oh no. <laughs> and in the end, the Lord gets the better, and you just strike up a conversation. Oh, are you waiting for your wife shopping? You know, and somehow trying to speak about Jesus or give a leaflet. But it's, it's hard. But it's the Christian life. <laughs> Let's pray now. Father, I want to thank you for your beloved Son. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your life, for your death for your resurrection. Holy Spirit, we want to thank you for living within each child of God, giving us the courage we lack. And we pray, Lord in heaven, that you would show us what we can do for you, how we may serve you, be used of you. Keep us from all the snares that surround us. And come, Lord, may we, even this day, be led by you into a way that we can come out and be bold, gracious, winsome, loving, effective. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.